Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Peak TV's Unapologetic Jewish Women, Exploring Jewish Female Representation in Contemporary Television Comedy, published by Lexington Books in 2022, Samantha Pickett analyzes the ways in which contemporary American television is establishing a new version of the Jewish woman and a new take on American Jewish female identity that challenges the stereotypes of Jewish femininity proliferated on television since its inception. Samantha Pickett is Assistant Professor of Instruction in Jewish Studies and the Assistant Director of the Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to be here. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. Um, So my general background is in um, American studies. That was what my degree was in in, um, at Boston University, where I got my PhD. And my concentration was representations of Jews in American culture, um, focusing mostly on literature, film, and television. And um, I really became interested in how Jewish women specifically were represented and the stereotypes that kind of governed um, how Jewish women, you know, the sort of identity of what it means to be a Jewish woman is kind of communicated in um, popular culture works, both by Jews and, and not by Jews. And um, so this, this work kind of came a little bit out of those broader research interests. Um, I've always been a, a very big TV fan just in general. Um, and actually, when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, I took a really great class um, about American Jews and television. It was called like TV Jews or something like that. And um, it was a great course. And it was really the first time that I actually was introduced to the idea that you could study television in an academic kind of way. (laughs) 
So we were watching all of these series, these famous series from, you know, the inception of television all the way to what was then the contemporary moment. And so, you know, looking at things like the Mary Tyler Moore show from the 70s, um, things like Seinfeld from the 90s, Curb Your Enthusiasm from the 2000s. And it was just a really sort of eye-opening experience um, and one that kind of got me on this path about like studying Jewish popular culture. Um, and so this, this specific project was born out of a um, article that I had published about the CW series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, um, which was on the CW um, created by Rachel Bloom's Jewish female writer comedian um, around 2014. And I just loved writing about these ideas, loved writing about television and after writing about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and really kind of doing the research into that specific series, started noticing how um, much Jewish content and Jewish female content specifically there has been in the last 10 years. Um, and it kind of got me thinking, like the, the ideas and themes that I'm noticing in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are things that exist in other series Um you know, streaming series and network and cable series as well. And I just really wanted to explore it. So, yeah. Here we are. Well, that's terrific. Um, so you mentioned uh, the Mario Tyler Moore show. Um, what was the 1970s sitcom Rhoda about? And why was the show's depiction of its Jewish uh, title character unique for the time? Yeah, so um, Rhoda was Mary's best friend on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And um, she was originally conceived in, in the Mary Tyler Moore sort of universe as this sort of ethnic sidekick. Um, and Mary was sort of depicted as a almost feminine ideal. She was, she was, you know, beautiful and she was smart and everybody loved her and she was successful and really good at her job and just very competent. And Rhoda was sort of the foil. Um, she was very sarcastic and had this really sardonic sense of humor. And the series leaned heavily into sort of cultural stereotypes broadly conceived of Jewish femininity. You know, she had a very challenging relationship with her mother. She <laughs> had a sort of food obsession. She was always dieting or worried about her diet. Um, and so, you know, lots of kind of cultural stereotypes there. But she was also this, the character that was almost the most relatable in the series because Mary was kind of unattainable. Like she was who you wanted to be, but Rhoda was who you sort of actually were. Um, and so in 1974, um, CBS decides to spin Rhoda off into her own series. Um, and so the, the show was just called Rhoda, creative title. And um, <laughs> basically it's her, she moves back to New York where she's originally from and she is just kind of like living and working and being a single woman in the city. She eventually meets and marries a man. Um, you know, she, she interacts with her parents on a regular basis, butts heads with her mother. Um, and she has her sister, Brenda, who kind of becomes the Rhoda character as Rhoda develops into this protagonist main character role. And, um, the thing that's interesting about the series and one of the things that I think makes Rhoda as a character so sort of essential um, is the fact that 
she really is this character who, you know, even with all of the kind of cultural stereotypes and not a lot of depth um, communicated about what Jewishness actually entails, she's a Jewish female character who's given voice and perspective. She talks directly to us and we're encouraged to see ourselves in her. And so it's a different kind of pattern than we're used to seeing at this point in time in the 70s um, in television where the Jewish female character is not there as a butt of the joke. She's not there just to be compared to the non-Jewish female character. She's there in her own right as a character that has a perspective um, who's you know deeply funny, very relatable, and, and sort of presented in this way that makes her seem very kind of round and human. Um, and so her Jewishness and the sort of all of the, you know, fetching and complaining and everything that comes with it is sort of um, represented to us as the audience as a, as a universal sort of quality. And she, in that way, kind of becomes a sort of female version of the Schlemiel archetype, which is this classic sort of mainstay of um, Yiddish humor and American Jewish humor, usually a male stereotype. Um, where you have this kind of lovable loser sort of character, um, a, an everyman that you're supposed to, you know, look at him and, and see him and see yourself in him. Um, and so Rhoda kind of does the same thing for the Jewish woman. It's a sort of schlemielization of Jewish femininity. Right. But uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, you kind of touched on, um, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about it. How overtly Jewish was the show Rhoda and the character Rhoda? So disappointingly, not very explicitly <laughs> or overtly Jewish. And that, that's the kind of limitation to what network television offers during this sort of classic network period. Um, you have a character who the series tells us this is an explicitly Jewish character and we are told she is Jewish. It's incorporated into jokes. Um, there's even an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show where she experiences anti-Semitism in a very sort of after school special sort of way. Um, but there's no depth. There's no cultural depth to what that Jewishness entails. She's Jewish because she's sarcastic and she's, you know, kind of negative and she's very self-deprecating. Um, her mother codes her as Jewish because her, her mother named Ida is this very classic kind of Jewish mother stereotype. And so the relationship between Rhoda and Ida is very Jewish coded. Um, there's lots of food talk. And so, you know, they, they talk about brisket. There's sometimes like a square bottle of Manischewitz that's sort of placed in the set dressing. Um, but there's, there's nothing sort of to the Jewishness other than these broad cultural strokes. Um, and this is really what Jewishness on TV is during the network era. It's mostly something that's kind of built into the stereotypical way that the character is conceived, all of these kind of cultural winks and nods that let us know this is somebody who's ethnic and different, um, but not in any kind of way that actually communicates what that difference is or what that ethnicity entails. And there's certainly nothing religious that happens, um, which is interesting as well. Um, I mean, she, in the first season of Rhoda, 
they're wondering what to get their mother for Christmas. She gets married. She gets married, and it's like it's not a Jewish ceremony at all. Like it's 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 strange. Like she she ends up with a stepson for a little while. She ends up getting divorced, but she ends up with a stepson for a little while, and he calls um, Ida Nona instead of Bubby. Like it's just it's such a weird sort of thing because it's like she's so Jewish, but she's not in any kind of way that actually matters. It's such a whitewashing. Wow. Wow. Well, how common was it to have female Jewish main characters in TV shows before the 1990s? Not common at all. Rhoda was only the second one. Um, And so the first one was Molly Goldberg from Gertrude Berg's television series, The Goldbergs, which ran in the um, 50s. And that was adapted from a radio series, a wildly popular radio series that had, you know, begun in like the 20s and 30s and then just sort of ran all the way until the advent of TV. And the thing that's really interesting about the Goldbergs is TV was so new um, when that show was on that the model was kind of let's take things we know are popular from radio and just convert them to television. And so what was popular on radio um, at you know that time were a lot of ethnic series. You have not just things like the Goldbergs, but also, you know, I remember Mama, which I think was a Norwegian family or Swedish immigrant family. Um, you had Amos and Andy, which was a horribly racist, um, you know, show that was supposed to depict African-American life, of course, you know, didn't, but was supposed to. Um, and then you had the Goldbergs, which was, you know, the, the Jewish, the Jewish story. And it was actually a very lovely series. And it's, it's such an interesting sort of case study because it's one of the most Jewish shows I've ever seen. It has like the family itself, they, they live in the Bronx. The parents are immigrants Um, from Eastern Europe. The children are American-born, so it explores a lot of kind of themes and issues related to intergenerational differences and what it means for first-generation Jews to become American and all of those sort of, you know, themes. the, The father works in the garment industry, and so, like, there's a lot of kind of cultural sort of signs, but then there's also all of these episodes that have deeply like Jewish religious themes. There's one episode in particular where the family is um, celebrating Yom Kippur and they actually go the you know, night before Yom Kippur to the Kol Nidre service, the you know important service that starts the holiday. And there's like seven to eight minutes at the end of the episode where a cantor is just singing Kol Nidre. Wow. And you see, you know, the family and everything. So it's this deeply Jewish show. And then um, after TV kind of gets on its feet and industrializes, sort of figures out what it's going to be, that goes away. And suddenly, suddenly where I love Lucy and Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and all of these, um, you know, shows that are supposed to sort of depict America as it's meant to be in this beautiful sort of suburban whitewashed landscape. Um, I love Lucy's a little different than that, but still. And um, it's, it's interesting because once the Goldberg sort of goes off the air and goes away, there are like no Jewish women on TV. And then suddenly there's Rhoda 
And then she goes away. Um, her, her series lasts from 1974 to 1978. And then there are no Jewish women on television comedies. There are like, there are some side characters throughout the eighties. Um, but like the next major female Jewish protagonist on a network comedy series is the nanny with Fran Drescher, which doesn't happen until 1993. Right. So from, so basically um, from the sort of early 1990s to uh, 2010, there's an explosion of representations of Jewish women on TV. And I'm curious, how stereotypical were those representations during this period? Yeah, very stereotypical is the short answer to that question. Um, the thing that's interesting is you sort of have this... Um, this, this kind of explosion where suddenly networks are a little bit more comfortable having Jewish representation on TV, but that representation is still very um, stereotypical, very kind of whitewashed, especially when it comes to Jewish women. Um, and so, you know, you have characters like um, the women on Friends, the, you know, NBC sitcom, um, Rachel, Jennifer Aniston's character is a classic Jewish American princess. Um, and, and Monica Courtney Cox's character is, is this sort of neurotic um, kind of, you know, she's supposed to represent the sort of Jewish female neuroses. Um, you have characters like Grace Adler on NBC's Will and Grace. Um, and she, again, is this kind of bundle of nerves sort of character that is, you know, obsessed with finding a husband, difficult relationship with her mother, and all of these sorts of things. Um, you know, you see it on, on Frasier with Lilith, who was a character that had been carried over from Cheers. And she was a recurring character that, you know, appeared at least once a season on Frasier as, as the main character's ex-wife. And she was this ice queen. Um, and you have, you know, Susie Essman's character on Curb Your Enthusiasm, who's basically situated throughout the series as this like diabolical nemesis of Larry. Um, and so we're always kind of rooting against her and seeing her, her cruelty and her brashness and her vulgarity um, towards him as this kind of tortured Jewish male character. And so there, there are more Jewish women, but they're not necessarily communicating anything very good about <laughs> Jewish femininity. Right, right. And then uh, how did the technological changes to TV distribution since 2010 profoundly change the representation of Jewish women on TV? Um, so basically, you have a change in the way that we watch TV in the sort of network era. And even, you know, once cable became a thing and you had these prestige kind of shows on networks like HBO, um, you have a very set schedule. You have to be present to watch the television show when it's on. You know, that, that's kind of where the must-see TV Thursday, which was NBC's big thing, or, you know, TGIF on ABC. They all had, you know, the nights where their best shows were on. And America would come, and they would gather around the TV, and they would watch those shows. And millions of people would be watching at once. And, the, you know, the Seinfeld finale was so big that they actually broadcast it in Times Square in New York. Um, that's how many people watched it when it was on at the exact time, you know, on NBC. Um, 
streaming changes this. And so you have, you know, Netflix kind of come into being in 2010 as the, the first major player, but Amazon Prime and Hulu follow soon thereafter. And now, of course, there's more streaming services than there are hours in the day. But um, <laughs> basically what streaming does is it takes the sort of prestige television model of cable, which, you know, we're supposed to have not just like something that's on, but something that really speaks to us and that represents what we're supposed to, you know, want to be engaging with, with a very sort of individualized broadcasting model. We watch what we want when we want it. Like we, we don't have to wait. We don't have to, you know, do it when other people are doing it. We watch anything that we want at any given time on our computers, on our phones, you know, on our televisions. Um, and so it's this very kind of individualized sort of process where we no longer want something that is necessarily made to speak to all of America at once. We want something that speaks to us. Um, and so that sort of niche storytelling model, um, combined with the fact that there just are so many platforms that want unlimited content that want to be able to offer anybody, whatever they want at any given time means that there's more room for, um, you know, Jewish content for content that reflects the experiences of, you know, ethnic minorities and people of color and people who aren't necessarily, reflecting just the sort of um, hypothetical, like white American Midwestern viewer that network executives were obsessed with kind of appealing to. Um, and so this sort of like niche person casting, like, you know, individualized content is really making it possible for there to be um, more series that really sort of allow us to get past stereotypes and broad cultural archetypes and more to content that really kind of reflects the experiences of diverse people. Um, and, you know, those diverse people, not just on camera, but also behind the camera, you have more women, more people of color who are creating content and who have room to do so because of the nature of the way that um, streaming platforms are sort of constructed. Right. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the sort of case studies that you look at in depth. Uh, but I'm curious, given that there, there are now so many more um, uh, Jewish female representations on TV and that these characters um, you know, have much more depth to them, are there common threads that tie the post-network Jewish women of television to each other? Or are these really just, you know, um, sort of isolated cases of Jewish women doing, you know, all kinds of um, you know, different things? Um, there's a lot of diversity and there's a lot about the characters that I sort of hone in on in the book that don't really speak to each other, which I think is great because you have Jewish female characters that are no longer meant to represent this is what all Jewish women are like. They're only representing themselves, which I think is a really sort of refreshing change. Um, but at the same time, there are some common threads and there are threads that kind of relate to 
larger differences in the way that female identity is kind of being um, repurposed and reclaimed within popular culture, and also the way that um, Jewish identity is being sort of reclaimed within popular culture. Um, a few of the things that I notice that I find really sort of exciting and heartening are um, this kind of unruliness to these characters. They're sort of women who who can't be tamed, who are a little bit too much, but it's framed in this very kind of positive way. They speak for themselves. They're opinionated. Um, they're not necessarily existing um, just to sort of um, supplement the experiences of other sort of characters or, you know, male protagonists. Um, and they're also deeply Jewish. And the Jewishness is communicated in different ways. Some of the characters are very secular, and so it's more of a cultural kind of Jewishness. Some of them do engage with like religious ritual when it makes sense to them. But the Jewishness is no longer something where it's just kind of like, oh, these stereotypes are present, and so I know that this person is meant to be Jewish. It's now, oh, this character, you know, her grandmother died and she's sitting Shiva, and, and, you know, the, the, this, this character is going to a Holocaust museum. And, you know, the, the, this character is, I mean, on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, there's a character who fasts on Tisha Bov. Um, and, and so it's like you, you actually have some cultural specificity that I think is shifting us into a new era of television where we're actually having stories that at least begin to reflect the way that actual American Jews experience their Judaism. Right. And I'm just curious, because I, 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 I can't help myself, uh, the sociologist in me is is just, uh, you know, fascinated by all of this. And I'm wondering, like you mentioned before, and you talk about in your book, how like during the network, you know, a uh, 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 period era in television, you know, the, the network, you know, um, bosses were like terrified that like the Goyim, the non-Jews in, you know, Midwest America or whatever, like they would shut the TV off, you know, the moment that someone did something really Jewish, you know, it would just, I don't know, sort of freak them out or whatever. And um, I understand what you were saying about the streaming services and, and that there's, you know, sort of niche um communities um you know that that coalesce around particular shows and and characters you know but i'm wondering like what happened to those fears you know in, in other words do we have any sense of um you know the reception of these very jewish um characters um on you know on the part of you know non-jews who are living in the midwest or whatever <laughs> Um, that's a that's a really good question. It's, it's actually it's a kind of difficult question to answer because streaming services tend to be very cagey about actually sharing numbers. And so, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but, you know, I would love to be able to sort of incorporate some quantitative data in my, you know, analyses and everything. And it's very hard to because they don't actually tell you how many people are watching a given series. And even when they cancel things, you know, they cancel things at sort of a whim that seem very popular. And then some things kind of stay on forever. Um, what I will say is that um, Transparent, for example, which was Amazon Prime's, like, you know, one of their first series. It was the first streaming series from a non-network, non-cable context to win um, the Golden Globe and the Emmy for, for best series. Um, and 
I you know, not that awards sort of tell us everything, and they certainly don't tell us things necessarily about popular reception. But in terms of you know critical reception and sort of what the industry was willing to accept, I think that that was a very big benchmark that sort of signaled this this shift, this shift where we can have stories that technically aren't supposed to reflect everybody's experience. These are not quote unquote mainstream stories. And yet the universal qualities that people are able to glean from them about family, about, you know, personal demons, about, you know, identity related struggles, these things that all human beings sort of ruminate on throughout their lives placed in the specific kind of context of, you know, Jewishness and then in the case of transparent, also sort of, you know, gender fluidity and and that kind of, you know, those sorts of questions as well. Um, I I think that that series success and then the success of subsequent Jewish series after that sort of signaled, okay, we're in a moment now where we no longer have to be afraid of having too many characters who are explicitly defined as Jewish. Um, And I think part of that has to do with the fact that um, streaming platforms, unlike traditional um, cable and television networks, aren't necessarily bound as much to the traditional kind of Nielsen rating paradigm where they're trying to get as many people all at once. It's more sort of cumulative over time. Um, but I will say, even you know, to this day, and I talk about this in the book, there's a difference that is very noticeable between what contemporary network series are doing with Jewishness um, and what streaming and cable series are doing with Jewishness. And streaming and cable, they're more transgressive, and they are more transgressive because they're expected to be. The network sort of still has this reputation for being the thing that can communicate the specific in a universal way. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where a series like the the new version of the Goldbergs, which has absolutely nothing to do with the old version, um, that's where something like that comes in that's sort of very still very much rooted in um, classic stereotypes that don't really do very much to communicate anything about Jewishness. The series doesn't even use the word Jew or Jewish until like several seasons in it's like it's a very strange series (laughs) (laughs) wow wow okay uh so can you tell us a little bit about the show crazy ex-girlfriend that you mentioned already sure yeah so um crazy ex-girlfriend was created by rachel bloom um and it aired on the cw and so technically it's it's one of the only series that i look at in the book that actually does come from a, a network as opposed to a cable um, cable channel or, or a streaming platform. But um, it's a sort of musical comedy that centers on a Jewish woman who um, she's a high-powered Manhattan attorney, kind of, you know, on the fast track. And she runs in randomly to the guy that she had a major crush on when she was a kid. And she decides to uproot her entire life and move to his hometown. Um, And the whole series is a sort of deconstruction of romantic comedies and sort of a deconstruction of the sort of romantic driven myths that we tell ourselves about love conquering all and about, you know, love making you crazy. And it's kind of situated against the backdrop of the main character, Rebecca's mental health struggles. Um, And she, you know, has 
serious mental health struggles that she sort of excuses and kind of overlooks as, oh, well, I'm just in love. And so it's okay that I'm kind of acting in these erratic ways. Um, And over the course of the series, it kind of deconstructs all of that. It deconstructs the excuses that she makes for herself. It deconstructs the way that she sort of pigeonholes the people around her into these very flat one-dimensional stereotypes so that they fit into like the narrative that she's created in her head. Um, And it does so in a way that is both funny and very poignant. And she is a very kind of proud, self-identifying Jewish woman. Um, And so the series kind of foregrounds her Jewishness as one of the major kinds of things that she, you know, experiences and grapples with and deals with over the course of the series itself. Um, And, you know, it's really interesting. There, because of the way that the series sort of deals in um, stereotypes and archetypes um, because of the way that Rebecca, her perspective sort of so heavily drives the series. It does sort of, I think, in some ways pejoratively use stereotypes like the Jewish mother and the Jewish American princess. But in the characterization of Rebecca herself, you have this very complicated, very sort of nuanced Jewish woman who is aware of the kind of inherited trauma and intergenerational sort of struggles that she faces as a result of, um, you know, her, her sort of struggles with her identity, but also she's very proud and she's very sort of, um, Nathan Abrams calls it culturally narcissistic, which I think is a great um, turn of phrase and just really describes what the series does really well. It's the sort of show where um, it doesn't care if you don't understand her Jewish cultural lexicon. It just, it does what it's doing. And if you, if you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't. And so it's this weird kind of like inverse fish out of water thing where suddenly the Jewish viewers are the ones who are being spoken to, and then everybody else has to kind of catch up, um, which is really interesting. Could you give us an example of that, where something is sort of said or or shown, and like you said, either if you know, you know, and if you don't, you just kind of move on. Yeah, there's this this great number. She has has a nemesis, because of course she does. Um, And her nemesis is her sort of childhood rival, um, Audra Levine, who, you know, is also a lawyer, also on the fast track. They kind of have always been pitted against each other, wanting the same things. And um, they go head to head in a case. And Rebecca conceives their rivalry as a musical number, um, a a rap battle, but she calls it a Jap battle, a Jewish American princess battle. (laughs) And um, the whole thing is, is a rap number where they're basically just going back and forth with all of these references to their, you know, their childhood and their upbringing and their, you know, relationship and everything. But it's peppered with these very clear Jewish cultural references. Um, you know, things like the, the matzah ball, which is a huge, you know, dance for, for Jews, I think, on Christmas Eve. Um, then, then, you know, she talks about A.E. Pi, which is, you know, Jewish fraternity. Um, they sort of exchange Yiddishisms and Hebrew phrases. There's, you know, there's kol Vod happening. There's, you know, they, they talk about, you know, how both of them are a Shonda. And there's actually a moment where Rebecca, like, stops the song mid-song, and she says, that means disgrace. I'm translating for the goys. 
pants. And it's like <laughs> this, this idea of translation happening where it's like, this is, this is my culture. This is what I'm, you know, doing. This is the way that I talk and, you know, who I am, how I engage with this. And I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm not going to explain it. It's here. And if you want to, if you want to join me on this sort of journey, you're going to have to learn, learn these codes, learn these sorts of things that I'm talking about. And if not, like you're not going to understand the show as much. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off wow um so how does the show's representation of jewishness intersect with its progressive discussion of mental health gender and politics one of the things that's really interesting is rebecca kind of um she blames her jewishness for her mental health issues for the first um, two or three seasons of the series before she's really kind of received a, a proper diagnosis because she's sort of been dealing with everything on her own. Um, and, you know, she talks about inherited trauma and how, you know, she, she basically equates Jewishness with misery. And it's this very sort of heavy thing that kind of carries with her throughout the series, even as she's proud of being Jewish, she's proud of, you know, kind of being different. Um, she also sort of perceives her Jewishness as something that sort of marks her for this, this harder life. It's more difficult. And um, there's a really great episode that kind of deconstructs that. In, in a way that I think is really powerful. Cause I, I don't think that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend by any stretch of the imagination is the first like work of pop culture that sort of makes that connection. You know, all Jews are neurotic, all Jews are crazy. Like that, that, that's sort of a cultural stereotype that's very much built into American popular culture. Um, and there's an episode where she, she travels home um, and she's attending a family bar mitzvah. And she brings, she brings her boyfriend, the childhood crush, Josh, who, you know, at this point is her boyfriend in the series. And she brings him because she wants him to be as miserable as she is. She wants him to see everything that's going on and to be like, you know, I understand why you needed to leave this. Like, yes, like basically give his blessing that she was right. And he has a great time. He's having a great time. And, <laughs> and he's she, not Jewish. He's not Jewish. And he's having a great time. Everybody else is having a great time. And during the, the, the party, the bar mitzvah party, she has another sort of musical number. And the musical numbers throughout the series are basically her kind of trying to negotiate her discomfort with whatever is going on around her in a way that she can kind of control and understand. Um, and there's this great musical number, Klezmer themed. It's called Remember That We Suffered. And she's sort of 
imagining all of the people around her singing about how Jewishness is, you know, pain and it's misery and it's suffering. And even when we're happy, we have to remember the Holocaust and like all, all of these, you know, stereotypes. And she eventually has a conversation at the end of the episode with the rabbi of, of the temple who basically says, like, you've got to stop blaming your Jewishness for being miserable. Like you're the only one here who is unhappy. And so (laughs) it's not necessarily about this kind of idea of epigenetics or inherited trauma. It's more about like confronting what's inside you and really sort of moving forward with that. And so it's interesting because, you know, Rachel Bloom as the series creator has been very sort of vocal about her, you know, admiration for like the, the comedy and sort of, um, perception of Jewishness that you see in, in works like, you know, from Woody Allen or, you know, Mel Brooks, that kind of lean into this sort of heavy kind of correlation between Jewishness and neuroticism and mental health struggles and stuff. And um, it, it goes there, but then it kind of pulls us back by getting us outside of Rebecca's head and every so often reminding us that these stereotypes and sort of misconceptions are the result of her limited way of, you know, thinking and seeing and understanding the world, but not necessarily what's actually happening. Right, right. Wow. So fascinating. Um, all right, let's let's move on to another show. Could you tell us a little bit about the show, uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Sure. Um, so The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is an Amazon Prime series, which was um, created by Amy Sherman Palladino, who... Um, People might know from Gilmore Girls. She was also the creator of that. And um, it basically follows Midge, who is this Jewish housewife living on the Upper West Side of New York in the 50s. And um, her husband leaves her um, the night before Yom Kippur. And he, you know, he tells her he's having an affair. He doesn't want to be with her anymore. And she sort of snaps. And she ends up rediscovering herself through a career in stand-up comedy. And it's really interesting because the way that the series uses stand-up and also uses Midge's Jewishness, um, you basically have Midge as this sort of stand-in for all of these like really amazing Jewish female comedians who actually were working in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and, and there's, you know, lots of interesting stuff about parallels between, you know, Midge and somebody like Joan Rivers, for example, who, you know, in the 60s was getting kind of getting her start and sort of, you know, her career exploded. Um, or Jean Carroll, who was also a, a famous Jewish female comedian who was really popular on television in the 50s. Um, and you, 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 so you, you sort of have through the mechanism of stand-up, Midge kind of reclaiming her voice, reclaiming her interiority, reclaiming her power, and using all of the kind of anger and anguish and everything that she's experienced as the result of her life essentially exploding, um, you know, using stand-up in order to kind of negotiate that. Like she develops this wonderful career out of the ruins of what she thought her life was going to be like. Um, And so she's sort of this, you know, she's very obsessed with clothes and she's very perky and, you know, very pretty and everything else. But she's sort of this... um, like anti-Jap, anti-Jewish American princess, where it's like her life has fallen apart 
it's deviated from the expected social scripts of what, you know, Jewish women are supposed to be doing, especially in that time period where, you know, basically it's a straight path from marriage and children and everything else. Um, And she just, she deviates completely and she ends up a career woman and a career woman who's very sort of, you know, outward facing, very outspoken and, you know, her, her material is very much infused with a kind of contemporary feminist sort of sensibility. And so it's also a kind of, you know, she, she's sort of like a proto-feminine mystique who just like goes around blowing the minds of everybody around her. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting sort of show. And it's also, you know, it's very kind of, um, it's very Jewish, um, and it's it's Jewish in a way that's you know irreverent and lots of jokes and stuff like that. But it's Jewish in the sort of acknowledgement of the very important role that Jewish comedians played um, in the mid-century period, shaping American comedy. Lenny Bruce is a kind of recurring character, um, and it's also very Jewish in its depiction of what a mid-century you know middle-class Jewish American family would have been doing and thinking about and caring about um, in the time period. And, you know, we see, again, there's lots of kind of religious and cultural specificity. There are characters, you know, we see them in synagogue quite a bit, um, complaining about, you know, fasting on Yom Kippur or talking during L'Chad Odi, uh, which is the prayer that welcomes Shabbat, but like there and present. Um, and there's lots of Jewish iconography, um, in terms of the actual set design with, you know, mezuzahs and samovars and sideboards that have menorahs on them, um, but also in terms of place-based iconography. And so we have, you know, characters visiting important mid-century New York sort of Jewish cultural landmarks, the Catskills, which, you know, is where Jewish comedy sort of lived in that time period, Coney Island, Um, you know, important synagogues that are sort of all over the East and West sides. Um, And so it's really, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's a a version of Jewishness that still very much sort of revolves around black and white cookies and briskets and, and, you know, delis and stuff like that. But that also then takes us other places that um, give us, I think, a larger picture of both Jewish history and Jewish practice um, within the kind of... um, like historical arc of middle-class American Jews who are sort of in the process of assimilating, but also maintaining that important kind of cultural distinctiveness at the same time. Right, right. I, I'm just reminded, I, I, I really love Marvel's Mrs. Basil. I think it's just such a brilliant show. And I'm reminded in terms of the Jewish specificity in the show, they even have this thing about rabbi cards that supposedly kids were you know, playing with and trading uh, with each other. Uh, and they mentioned Rabbi Schneerson, the Lubavitcher mm-hmm. Rebbe, and they mentioned Rabbi Hirschfeld, who was a, a rabbi in Hoboken uh, <laughs> at the time. And no one is basically talking about that except for my rabbi in Hoboken. And this is <laughs> one of his predecessors, you know, the, maybe the most illustrious, you know, predecessor, uh, you know, uh, in um, you know of, of a rabbi in Hoboken. So I was, you know, I, I remember watching it. I was like, oh my god! Like it's you know very kind of detailed um, and even sort of obscure material um, on a you know a major show. Well, and and again, it's the sort of thing where like it's kind of blink if you miss it. Like if you know that, that that's happening, if you understand those codes 
I mean, they're not even codes, they're explicitly laid out. But like, if you understand those references, that's, that's who the show is for. And um, there's like, there's a really great book by Henry Bile that talks about double coding. And it's basically this like concept where it's like, you have, you know, a show or film or, you know, book, whatever. And it has layered, like multiple layers of meaning. And there are many audiences that the thing can be for. And Mrs. Maisel is so a show that kind of falls under this realm of double coding because it's like on the one hand you have kids trading rabbi trading cards and it's like it speaks to people who understand that while also speaking to people who don't have that like that's not their experience but you know they they can pick up on other things and I think one of the things that Maisel does really well is it marries the idea of the Jewish and the universal. There's a lot going on in the series and there's a lot for, you know, people who love comedy. There's a lot for, you know, people who have nostalgia for old New York. There's a lot for Jewish viewers. There's a lot for, you know, female viewers who are sort of interested in this kind of proto-feminism. And it's just all of those things kind of come together to make this really wonderful series that people do love. It's been really, really well-received, you know, critical reception, lots of awards, really great viewership and, you know, very successful. And yet it's, you know, also a series where you have, like you just have this sort of level of Jewish cultural specificity that I think is so kind of unprecedented and also really refreshing. Right. And speaking of the of the proto feminism of of Midge, of the of the central character of the show, how does the show's insistence on her exceptionalism undermine the effectiveness of the show's reimagining of mid century tropes of Jewish femininity? Um, so I think that that's one of the, the big sort of limitations of the series from my perspective. Um, throughout the you know, course of the, of the series. And it's actually the final season is like being released right now as we speak. Um, the, Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. The, um, basically the series insists on her marvelousness. Like that, that's kind of the, the, the thing about her is that she is special and no one is like her, which, you know, on the one hand, kind of kind of great that there's this you know sort of mouthy jewish woman who who gets to be this like unattainable spectacular being um but on the other hand you also have this sort of sense that while she's breaking boundaries and barriers and doing all of these new and interesting things everybody else around her is relatively one-dimensional by comparison um and it's it's especially true of um her parents and her former in-laws who very much kind of play into these, you know, sort of stereotypical binaries about um, Jews who have sort of made it into the middle class and kind of successfully assimilated, and then Jews who are still on the journey to assimilation, kind of, you know, situated in more of an of a ethnically coded immigrant kind of world. Um, and the, the series sort of insistence on Midge being the only one who ever gets to break free of social scripts or boundaries is a little limiting because what we end up having is a protagonist who is doing really interesting things surrounded by a cast of characters who kind of reinforce the stereotypes that Midge herself is breaking and contradicting. And so it's, it's a, I think a a kind of weird dichotomy, um, but also something that, you know, if, 
you're familiar at all with Amy Sherman Palladino's other big series, Gilmore Girls, is very much kind of just her paradigm of like series making, of show running. She loves an interesting, complex, nuanced main female character surrounded by a supporting cast of oddballs and stereotypes. So it's kind of, I think, you know, for me, it's sort of a toss up because it's like on one hand, so many cool things are happening with the show. And it's, you know, it's really funny and like it's doing a lot. And on the other hand, could be doing more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. Could you tell us a little bit about the show's broad city and difficult people? Yes. So um, Broad City is a Comedy Central series um, that aired from 2014 to 2019, um, starring um, and also co-created by um, the comedians Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson. And then Difficult People was a Hulu series that um, was created and stars um, Julie Klausner, who's a wonderful writer and and Jewish female comedian. And um, both series, I think, are just excellent. But uh, both series are really interesting to me because they kind of introduce a a new archetype of Jewish femininity that um, in the book I call the unapologetic Jewess. And she's kind of, she's a mess. She, she's a failure as an adult. She's a failure as a woman. She's a failure as a Jew, but she's having the best time. And that's kind of, that all, all of these sort of, the kind of patterns of like shlemielization that we sort of see in the Rhoda character from the 70s, plus all of the kind of patterns of female precarity that we see in early 2010 series like Girls from HBO, for example, all of those kind of patterns come together to make this unapologetic Jewess character who doesn't have any of the shame associated with the failure. She's not self-deprecating. She's not worried about the fact that she's not necessarily getting ahead. She's just herself, like just purely herself. And she doesn't fit into sort of paradigms of what normative, acceptable femininity is supposed to be. She's very much a kind of, you know, figure who she's not interested necessarily in romantic relationships. She, she's more interested in her platonic friendships. She's sort of interested in finding herself as a person. Um, doesn't necessarily fit into the sort of paradigms of adult decorum. And, you know, she's very much a sort of, childlike kind of figure. Um, And then she's also, she's not, you know, an observant Jew or necessarily somebody who follows the tenets of Jewish law, but she has this deeply felt Jewishness that she just, you know, it's, it's something that's sort of a part of her, but it's also very sort of post-denominational and of her own making. Um, And so I, I find this kind of paradigm of, Jewish female identity to be really interesting because it's one of the only examples that I've ever seen of a Jewish female character who like, even as she fails, you, you want to see yourself in her. Like she's just, she's having the best time and she's, she's openly Jewish. She's purely herself and she is never sort of made into this kind of product of shame or punished for her actions or, or sort of punished for the ways that she doesn't necessarily fit into what we think, you know, a woman should be or a Jew should be. Um, yeah. 
Right. And I'm curious, could you give an example of how some of these characters um, sort of perform being a, quote, bad Jew, like fail as a Jew? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So um, there's a great episode of Broad City where um, Ilana, her her grandmother dies and um, the family sits Shiva for for Grandma Esther, who was you know sort of the, the family matriarch, and she she was this you know she was ninety two, and that they talk about her throughout the episode. She's you know a badass, and she played for the Rockford Peaches, and like you know played baseball, and she you know had a relationship with Little Richard, and like you know she's she, just a life full of you know sports and and sex and fun, and um, the way that the series kind of revolves around. Grandma Esther and around, you know, Abby and Alana and Alana's mother dealing with the grief of the loss, but also the joy in the life is just, it's really interesting. The, the Shiva scene specifically, I think is something that's like, for me, sort of emblematic of the patterns that the episode sort or the patterns that the series rather kind of um, revolve around Um, in the episode um, Ilana and her mother sort of go on this, you know, quest to find these um, purses, like counterfeit purses on Canal Street um, that Ilana's mother, Bobby, wants to give out to her friends at the Shiva house. And so there's this whole kind of component where they're sort of sending up the connection, the historical connection between Jewish female identity and consumerism. And, you know, it turns out as we kind of unfold what's going on over the course of the episode that the bags are much more about um, Bobby trying to sort of cope with her mother's death by not confronting it. And it's kind of a, it's a distraction. It's a coping mechanism. And Alana's is the one who helps her sort of come to terms with the fact that she has to say goodbye to her mother in a real way. And that these bags were just, you know, something that she was kind of using um, in order to distract her from doing that. And so you have this really kind of great, um, like reformation of the Jewish mother-daughter relationship where suddenly it's like the the Jewish daughter not only loves her mother, but also sort of mothers her mother when she needs it. And it's this really kind of wonderful cyclical Jewish femininity where Bobby and Alana are just alike and that's okay. It's actually great. And you have, you know, with the sort of foregrounding of the Shiva as the, the thing that the episode revolves around, this sort of sense of Jewish femininity as this really positive, beautiful, intergenerational kind of inheritance from generation to generation. And then the Abby subplot revolves around her wanting to engage in or her sort of being convinced by her kind of proto-boyfriend slash crush to engage in a sex act that she's not 100% comfortable with. And she does. And Alana spends the entire Shiva celebrating the fact that Abby did this thing. And um, the family ends up talking about it. And that's what the whole like Shiva house ends up being about. And Abby says... I, I did it for Grandma Esther because <laughs> she lived life with no regrets. And that's how I want to live my life. And so it's like this, it's, it's such a chaotic episode. It's a very strange episode. But it's also, I think, a very Jewish episode in the sense that you have, you know, the, the Shiva and, and the idea of, you know, the intergenerational inheritance of femininity, Jewish female identity, of family, of love, of everything else kind of in the background. And you have these these zany, 
kind of like, you know, chaotic, sex-crazed characters who are using their kind of understanding of, you know, themselves and what they are in order to honor family and honor all of these kinds of values. And then like the the relationship between the parents who are very open-minded and kind of, you know, they're into it. They're into hearing what their kids are doing and, you know, kind of yes-anding them, contributing to the conversation, that the kids love the parents and they respect them. That There's this sort of sense of, you know, Jewishness and Jewish family life and, and you know, just the reformation of what the Jewish family can be. It doesn't have to be dysfunctional. It doesn't have to be this sort of obligatory thing where, you know, I have to go to this family function, this Jewish family function. It's more, I'm going to go, I'm going to honor, you know, the, the family matriarch by talking about all of the ways that I want to be like her. Um, and, you know, the ways that I want to be like her are ways that are transgressive and unruly and a little bit too much and too much information. But the family is able to kind of use the Shiva as a way of connecting further bonding together over all of that oversharing. Right. Wow. It's fascinating. It reminds me of the the 2020 film Shiva Baby, which also uh, juxtaposed uh, sex and sexuality with the context of, of sitting Shiva for uh, a dead uh, loved one. Um, all right. Let's see. We're, we're almost out of time. I'm trying to see uh, which of the bunch of questions I'd love to ask you uh, we're going to settle on. Um, okay. How about this? Um I'm curious uh, what happens to the concept of self-representation of Jewish female identity on TV when many of the writers and actors of the shows that we're discussing um, are, are, are not themselves Jewish? Yes. So um, on most of the things that I've talked about, you actually do have writers who are predominantly Jewish and the creators of the series tend to also be, you know, the, the sort of head writers and kind of very active in what the scripts are and what the sort of stories are. In terms of acting and the performance of Jewishness by um, like actors who are, you know, on screen, that's a little bit of a different story. Many of the series that I talk about, so things like Broad City or Difficult People or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, um, you have the creators of the series playing themselves um, or, you know, playing the protagonist versions of themselves. And so the kind of, like, line to self-representation is very clear because it's like, you know, they've created the story, they've written the story, now they're acting in the story. Um, for things like um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has a lot of non-Jewish actors playing um, Jewish roles, including Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Midge. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, there's, a, you know, of course, a, a much larger debate about, you know, what Sarah Silverman sort of coined as Jew face, um, which I don't, I don't necessarily think that only a Jewish actor can play a Jewish character. I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, and I talk in, in the book about a lot of examples of non-Jews who play Jews and they do it well. Um, Lily Tomlin as Frankie Bergstein in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie is, is an example that comes to mind. I think that her performance is warm and, and lovely and 
really positive and it does nothing to like curb my enjoyment of it that Lily Tomlin herself isn't Jewish. Um, but I, I think it's more about how we perform Jewishness and how we write Jewishness. And um, like an example would be um, Tony Shalhoub's performance as Abe, Midge's father in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, he, he's not Jewish in real life. And the way that the character is sort of conceived, the way that he performs the Jewishness, very much kind of revolves around the Jewish male stereotypes related to kind of effeminacy, a lack of physicality, a sort of what in Yiddish would be called like nebishness, like the sort of nerdy, intellectual, um, weak conception of what Jewish masculinity is. And he leans into it. Um, and it's very much a part of the performance. And so with that, it's, it's, not, it's not great. It's not great in what it's communicating. It's certainly not communicating anything new. And the way that it's performed very much plays off of these kind of cultural codes that say this is a, you know, this is a Jewish man um, as opposed to you know, a quote-unquote normal man. Um, but, I mean, when you look at something like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, for example, um, Tova Feldsha, who is Jewish, plays Rebecca's mother, Naomi. And she's a monstrous Jewish mother in the series. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with Rebecca's sort of internalization of all of these tropes. But a lot of it has to do with the performance. She, she kills it as, as a stereotypical Jewish mother monster. Um, and so when you kind of compare Abe Weissman from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to Naomi Bunch from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, does it matter who's Jewish and who's not? I don't necessarily think so. I think what matters more is for us to be cognizant of the sort of like performance-based scripts, social scripts, um, and stereotypes that we use to communicate Jewishness, the cultural shorthand, I guess, um, of what Jewishness is or is not in popular culture, finding ways to kind of get beyond that so that we don't necessarily have to think of Jewishness in those monolithic and, and mostly negative terms anymore. Right. Oh, there's so much more to talk about, but we are out of time. So we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. <laughs> that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.